Ohio Habla es un podcast que nace del proyecto Narrativas Orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio. Exploramos la experiencia latina con entrevistas en español, inglés y spanglish. Welcome to Ohio Habla. My name is Sofia Enriquez, your host for today, and our guest today is Rachel Gonzalez-Martin. Dr. Rachel Gonzalez-Martin is a folklorist and associate professor of Latino studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Gonzalez-Martin earned her Ph.D. in folklore at Indiana University and a B.A. in anthropology from UC Berkeley. She is the author of the new book, Quinceañera Style, Social Belonging and Latinx Consumer Identities which just won the Emily Toth Prize for Best Book in Women's Studies from the Popular Culture Association. She is also the co-editor of Race and Cultural Practice in Popular Culture. Currently, Gonzalez-Martin is conducting ethnographic fieldwork in minority women-owned nail salons across the U.S. for her second monograph, which focuses on women of color feminist practice and social entrepreneurship. She is also currently collaborating on a new multi-authored project tentatively titled The Academic Uncanny, Specters of Belief and Epistemologies of Refusal. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel. Thank you for having me, Sophie. I appreciate it. Yeah. So let's start out with uh, you talking about your life as an anthropological folklorist and Latinx cultural studies scholar. So what is it exactly that you do? Yes. So I was trained in anthropology as an undergraduate and then at the graduate level as a folklorist. And an anthropological folklorist uh, means that I go out and do work in the community. So rather than necessarily focusing on archives or literature, which is very popular to, um, to study in the U.S. in terms of folklore, fairy tales, folk tales. Although I love those genres as well, my interest is really more a folklore as a means to engaging with communities and to looking at how communities grow and change, right? And how their folklore then has to grow and change with them. Um, so really that anthropological lens means I get to go talk to people, observe people, um, and I'm really focused quite a bit on the present. So I'm not necessarily historically oriented, although history clearly comes into the narratives that I share. I really care about what actual people are doing in their lives with folklore, particularly Latino communities, particularly uh, Latinas. So women or femme or queer identifying or trans women, anyone who who identifies themselves as feminine in presentation. Mm-hmm. And maybe we should also sort of clear up for any listeners that are unfamiliar with this like folklore, you uh, know, yes. what that is and what sort of counts or what sort of things... Uh, someone who claims to be a folklorist is interested in. Well, now that, I will have to say, is a very generational um, question because depending on where you're trained, when you were trained, I was trained um, by the late Alan Dundies who was quite a a big figure in um, U.S. American folklore studies and international folklore studies. But his narrative was very mu- very rigid. He was from a generation that was really trying to say there's a very a very clear line that something that is a piece of culture transmitted orally, shared from one generation to the next. It's informal knowledge. Um, at times includes material culture, but really was very much um, verbal artistry focused. And so the kind of information um, that I was trained around uh, were different forms of verbal genres, jokes, riddles, narratives. Um, and these were specifically understood as not having an author 
and they were specifically then further transmitted from one person to the next. Mm -hmm. And technology was just barely part of that narrative. And at the time that uh, my mentor was writing about sort of shifts in folklore, they were talking about copier folklore. So things people were literally putting on pieces of paper, copying and put around an office, like a joke, a, a crass joke or a a, a, a joke, stereotypical kind of joke about women or men or or bosses, right, that um, didn't have an author. No one could really place it as any kind of popular culture character. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's meant to be sort of this anonymous culture that comes up from the community um, and where community is defined as a folk group, right, people that share something in common. So uh, that could be regional, that could be occupational. Um, and I'm most particularly interested in gender and ethnicity, right? And how those things come together in the mm-hmm. Latino community. So folklore is the everyday artistry of the people. And that sort of open, wider definition, drawing on someone like Dan Benemos and thinking about um, the histories and the performance turn in folklore, is really thinking about what are people doing how are they doing it and why are they doing it um, and how that relates to their larger social identities. Um, and more and more now in the present, we think about folklore, we can include things like memes on social media right. or things that may have a particular life that isn't so clearly one-on-one face-to-face interaction with people, particularly as technology expands into these different ways. Uh, we're getting more and more flexible about what counts mm-hmm. as folklore. And personally, I I really love to think about folklore and popular culture. I've written a piece on the borderlands between folklore and popular culture, particularly because I work on uh, youth culture, thinking about quinceaneras, um, these coming-of-age celebrations that appear quite a bit in media. And so the idea of what does it mean when a piece of quote-unquote folklore, a ritual, a tradition like a quinceanera is first witnessed through a piece of mass culture? Right. What does that mean for the community? And how is that for some people? Oh, that's not authentic. Right. There's these undercurrents of what is real and what is not real or what is correct and not Mm -hmm. correct. And I that is not an interest of mine at all. If you're identifying with it as a Latino identifying person, it's your folklore. It's your culture. Right. Right. Um, So hopefully that clarifies a little. Yeah, definitely. And it's a segue into the next question, which is about what exactly has sparked your interest in Latinx cultural traditions in particular, like the quinceanera. Um, and if there's a personal connection to your research there, what led you to to that space? So what I tell my students always is research is always personal. Research is always subjective. Even if you're, you're using charts and graphs and numbers, you've made selections, you've made choices about your scope. It's, it's, the researcher is between all the lines, Mm -hmm. right? And so in my book, absolutely, you can find me in between every line. What people tend to ask and what I state very early in the book in the preface is that I didn't have a quinceanera. Mm -hmm. And really backing up a little bit and thinking about why Latino folklore became something that I was interested in and very passionate about and my career focus um, was really because it answered questions about my own life. It answered questions about my family life. I'm mixed generation of Latinoness, Mexican-American, Chicana from the West Coast, from California, particularly Oakland, California. And my family isn't an academic family, isn't an intellectual family, educated, professional degrees. Um, My family is very focused on education. But there were so many narratives of culture that I feel like I didn't get because my family was trying to protect us, my brother and myself, from being 
too Mexican mm. in the sense that their generation, my parents' generation, were generations who survived through assimilation. Speak English, um, you know, get educated in places that are legible, do jobs that are legible and respectable, um, which meant certain things that I didn't know when I encountered students, other Latino students, let's say in high school, who were eating certain things and speaking in a certain way and engaging with certain kinds of music that weren't part of my life. And so part of what folklore did for me was be able to see so much of the constructed narrative around cultural identities and to sort of feel less of a loss because I could start investigating what was going on. And my earliest research was really about masculinity and masculinity because I left home at 18 to go to college, but that wasn't good enough. I had, you know, Latino parents who wanted me to stay home and who wanted me to be close to home and didn't understand why I didn't want to stay. Um, and so much of so much of the folklore work and the studies, I worked in an archive. I found a community in folklore um, around my third year of college at UC Berkeley. And it, it just answered questions. There were these little things, jokes, language, food, that all of a sudden I knew I could learn. Right. And it made me feel like this isn't something that you're born knowing. Right. And there's a politics to not being taught. Mm -hmm. So it became really important to saying, oh, I can find these connections and really work on myself and right. my own family history. Um, with the quinceanera itself, you know, I didn't have one of these celebrations. I didn't want one. Um, but it was sort of a political question in my family and an economic question. My parents identify as Chicano in the very political sense that a Chicano has um, an anti-establishment narrative, um, is thinking about racial inequality, educational inequality, uh, political action. And so a quinceanera in a sort of a fluffy pink dress that my parents understood only marginally because their families were not families that celebrated quinceaneras. And many times we're not those kind of Mexicans, right. which has a subtle, there's a not so subtle hostility there. Um, but the narrative, they didn't fully understand or what they understood of it was, why would we, you know, we're very protective. Why would we want you to be seen as an adult woman? Why would we want people to think you were marriageable slash ready for sexual activity? It was absolutely antithetical to anything they thought about their little girl, clearly at 14, 15. So... Um, that is not where they wanted to invest thousands of dollars. And they didn't want to invest thousands of dollars in it anyway and really didn't have it to invest. Mm -hmm. But the narrative was always political, that that's not, that's not valuable. So it wasn't until I was in graduate school that I kind of got faced with people expecting me to know what a quinceanera was. And that actually made me, as I, I thought further into my dissertation, which was on quinceanera celebrations. Actually, it was more specifically on the quinceanera dress and the politics of the female body, mm. and it had developed further into the book, um, was this idea that all Latinas have a quinceanera narrative. There's this motif, very folkloristically framed, a quinceanera motif, and either it's a motif that is responded to with silence and absence, you never had one, or you regret not having one, um, or you're telling this story of negotiations with your family, or you're talking about uh, adapting a quinceanera to a Sweet Sixteen party. And so I thought it was really interesting because it made me realize that folklore so much isn't just about what we learn or what we have inside of us, but it's completely dialogic mm -hmm. in the sense that it's about presentation and reception. And it's in that reception 
where we really get politicized, right? So it's not enough to say you didn't have a quinceanera. People want the story why you, a Latina, who should be doing this because they understand it to be a Latino thing, didn't have one. And then we start getting into narratives of race, region, class, immigration, citizenship. And it was just a really fertile place to have these discussions. But it also was really legible to communities. Right. Yeah, and I I think it's a great example of really what folklore can do is to take this one thing and use it to explore and to interrogate and to ask ask bigger questions. So so really in your in your recently published book, Quinceanera Style, Social Belonging and Latinx Consumer Identities, um, what sort of questions are you asking, I guess more specifically, right? Sure. About the quinceanera and this coming of age celebration, as you say. Absolutely. So this isn't a book on ritual. This isn't a book about religion. This is a book about the spectacle of the racialized spectacle of Latinas in, in popular culture, really. And one of the ways in which, well, the way in which I do that is by centering the quinceanera as my um, ethnographic subject, the celebration itself. So I'm really interested in this idea of communities of practice. Mm-hmm. And I think talking about communities of practice is probably, well, is, is significantly more accurate than saying I'm going to study, quote unquote, Latinas in the U.S. Because if I really think about it, I'm actually more interested in people's relationship to traditions and how that forms a kind of community bond than people's uh, racialized box checking or their identifications um, ethnically. So... It was not a question of what's your ethnic origin and how has that impacted your quinceanera celebration. It was really what are the pieces of the quinceanera that come together to render it visible? Mm. And what is the politics of visibility? And so the big question that I'm I'm asking, particularly in the beginning that sort of frames the whole project and particularly the, the project from dissertation to book, is a narrative of who are Latinas allowed to be? And that's really thinking about social scripts, right? And this idea of I felt personally growing up that I always had to defend my Latinaness. Mm. I didn't speak Spanish well enough. I'm very pocha. I've gotten better. I do research in Mexico now. But in in reality, right, I'm pocha. I speak Spanglish. Um, I always found Spanglish or, or slang as a way to sort of work between worlds because people are like, oh, you know enough about us, commu- enough about language to play with it. Even if, you know, I, I would struggle to sure. define myself, right, in, in proper Spanish. Um, and so the idea was, you know, who are Latinas as, as subjects, as people, as social actors allowed to be? And how does the quinceanera um, create a space for kind of social negotiation of visibility, mm-hmm. right? The Latina spectacle. What mm-hmm. does it mean to be racialized? Whether it's on the small scale as a brown-skinned woman, or even uh, a Spanish-speaking woman, Latina, you know, whatever the margins of people's um, descriptors are, right, is in public, what do people expect of us, mm-hmm. right? Uh, is it this notion of the spicy Latina? Is it um, on an academic campus, extra studious conservative, because you come from a protected family background? I think the most interesting narratives of quinceaneras I've seen are when, you see quinceaneras in places that aren't 
restricted by ritual. So it's not the church or the party, but it's in the jack in the box line. It's roaming the mall with a Slurpee. It's this idea of absolutely taking and saying there's this very distinct cultural ritual that specifically has legibility within our ethno-racial generational communities, sometimes religious communities as well. And I'm going to take it and put it in the mall. And what does that mean Mm. about that's sort of a brave act. And that's one of the themes that kind of gets um, narrated through the book, but particularly in the conclusion, I come back to this idea that to be one, to be conspicuously female and conspicuously racialized in the United States is dangerous, especially in the sociopolitical moment we live in now. And it always has been, really. And so what does it say when um, a young Latina, a young quinceanera and her court, who might be looking a lot less conservative than people would like, brightly colored dresses, you know, bright pink or striped or zebra print, right? Um, and their large court of other conspicuously racialized youth mm-hmm kind of saunter around in these different places, these public places that have that are specifically not Latino focused. And there's a certain amount of social power um, in being able to do that. And so really when I work through the Quinta, I'm thinking about all these ways that visibilizing um, becomes possible. Yeah. Well, everyone should read it. <laughs> the award, <laughs> a recently award-winning book. Um, and also especially for anyone anyone who's listening who might be interested in pursuing this kind of research or currently doing this sort of work. Um, could you share a bit more about your, your method process? Sure. And any sort of field research? Um, it's crazy. No, just kidding. Um, my research method, it's, it's from a quote-unquote methodological perspective, right? It's really mixed methods. So I primarily go out and meet people. So I spent the better part of a decade. I started doing research on quinceaneras in – when I, I left IU to go into the field around 2009. And I had decided at that time, well, initially, according to my uh, proposal, I was going to go and volunteer and hang out at the Quinceanera shop near in Oakland, where uh, near where I grew up, which was very much a possibility. <laughs> but somewhere in between writing and defending my proposal and actually leaving Bloomington to go back to California – um, I realized that there were these expos, quinceanera expos, or these product exhibitions. That unlike other product exhibitions, weren't really for other professionals, but they were professionals hosting essentially elaborated, gigantic public quinceaneras where they were advertising all the things you could buy, but you weren't actually selling anything just yet. Um, and so sort of maybe like a bridal expo. Absolutely, a yeah. bridal expo. And in fact, the... Quinceanera Expos, the earliest, um, and this is the company that I worked with called Quinceanera Magazines, Inc. And they started doing their expos um, after building out from having just a paper magazine, a print magazine. And they put that print magazine online and they decided we could do more. Um, And they, in 2005, they started, they did their, they hosted their first expo. um, And they're based in Las Vegas, but there's franchises across the country. Mm-hmm. And so during my dissertation work, I essentially, I found an expo that was a private expo for a company um, in San Jose, California. And San Jose, um, I would say, has a much more, has a, a much more centralized uh, Mexican-American population. And so I started rooting around there to figure out, okay, where am I going to find these shops? Who am I going to talk to? 
And I found these expos, and I particularly was at um, a bridal store in Eastside San Jose called Angel's Bridal. Fantastic tiny house that was uh, brightly colored, right, you know, in the middle of sort of a little a little business district, right, where on one side of, you know, one side of about a mile long uh, strip, there was a Catholic church, Sacred Heart Catholic Church, and on the far end of it, Angel's Bridal was the quinceanera shop, and it was one of three quinceanera businesses on this strip, but also there were panaderias, a supermercado, mm. kind of everything you might need, Um there was a dress shop. There's two dress shops. Uh, there was also a Western wear shop. So there's all these sort of like consumer, these consumer elements. So I remember going in one day and uh, there weren't dresses. There were dresses, a few dresses, but it wasn't about like off the rack kind of materials. Um, I talked to a young man, queer man named Cesar, who was sort of their designer slash host slash front desk person. And um, he was really busy, but he was really kind and would talk to me and said, you want to see my work cohere? And he, he handed me a flyer for an expo. And I was like, I don't know what this is. So I went. Um, and it was in a weird back lot kind of warehouse. I was like, oh, my God, where am I going? Um, and there's balloons. It kind of looked like I was trying to find someone's backyard quinceanera. But then I go in and what you have are it's it's a public event. And it was celebrating sort of an event planning company in San Jose. And what it did, it was featuring local designers, local dress shops. Um, and there was a, you know, there was a really, it was, it was, to me, it was a very, it was very Mexican. There's a payaso or a clown who was the, the MC. Um, it was all in Spanish. It was completely monolingual as, as, a, as a space. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was fabulous and interesting because it was also a very particular consumer space. And what you had were Latino, not even vendors, you had Latino companies displaying their work. And there was Cesar on the stage with a a large body of girls. I think that was at the time they were, there was one girl who was, her dress was uh, themed from Belle from Beauty and the Beast. And it turns out that while in 2013, Disney released a princess line of quinceaneras to be sold in in high-end dress shops. But these guys were doing it under the radar. They were saying, they'd have girls come and say, I would like this dress and they would make it. Mm. So they weren't exactly the Disney branded, but they were close enough to be um, legible. And I realized this is a really interesting space. It's not an individual space. It's it's consumer driven, but not a store. Um, how do I how do I how do I hang out with this these these ephemeral and they're temporary, right? They're right. up for a day and then they're gone. And so I decided to follow Keen City Magazines Inc., another company, and I basically for two years sort of ran their circuit around California from Sacramento, Northern California down to the border. San Diego and I I was looking at what what are quinceanera's options what is being sold mm-hmm. as quinceanera culture and that's really where this consumer narrative became so potent because what you realize is you had um, communities of sellers who were just as invested in the tradition as families celebrating but they were actually very much interested in the transmission of culture mm-hmm. right but it's also because that gets you a sale right you can convince the family this is part of your daughter's history, your family history right. and heritage. By the way, this dress is 
$700 or this right. dress is $1,500. But that became part of the narrative, right? Mm-hmm. And I realized, so I, I followed that circuit for a long time. I started to engage with different vendors for different um, at different events. And what the book then becomes is a conversation about different industries, right? This idea of con- the, I follow a quinceanera and her daughter in sort of the purchasing of a dress. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to find yourself on the rack in mainstream places? Um, what are the influences on dress and style? Mm-hmm. I talked to these queer, lovely queer men who are hairdressers in Kansas City, Missouri, um, who are just fantastic and who are like, you know, more than 90% of their clientele are Quintanita girls. Mm-hmm. And their their vision is haute couture and something different. And they're not trying to make everyone look like light pink and demure. They're like, these girls need to sparkle. Um it's a kind of magic and that's a wholly different perspective. And they've been, you know, they travel, they said, we travel all over the Midwest. We'll go wherever people will, you know, wherever people want us, if they pay for us to, you know, they pay for our, our room and board and our gas. Um, and it's a different kind of, it's just a different kind of style, different kind of expectation with a regional identity attached to it. Yeah. Um, and then I, I, I go to Mexico city and I engage with um, a, a mujer trans, a trans woman who does street performance, who's, a, who's, a, a sh- who's trained at UNAM in visual arts and who has a persona as a quinceanera and she uses it to think about um, activism mm-hmm. in Mexico against transgender, uh, um, violence against transgender communities, particularly trans women. And the quinceanera becomes this very potent image that's comfortable uh, to the popular, to the populace, right? People will come up to her and talk to her and it's only when they get close enough to hear her speak and they hear that her voice is deep that there's this distancing created and she realizes that she could spend 15 minutes engaging visually as a quinceanera with music and dance and they would never know and they're actually, by the time that she might say something at the very end, she's like, they seem genuinely changed. Mm-hmm. Right. Because they're trying to reconcile the idea that because her celebrations, her performances were the most traditional. Right. The most demure, um, the least sensational other than they were in public. Right. But right. this idea that she was drawing on a kind of nostalgia about women and gendered performance. But she was also very much trying to engage and make viewers comfortable so they could understand her as a human being. Mm-hmm. Right. So the Kitsi is having these very different um foci, right? About what it what they can do socially and culturally and individually. And at the same time, what they share is this kind of radical visibility. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to say I will not be invisible? Right? right. Um and I think that's one of the most important parts. Yeah. This reoccurring uh idea or this word that's come up of legibility and being and being visible especially rings um I mean in a lot of a lot of work now but um of U.S. Latino communities that are in spaces where Latinos might not be part of this dominant cultural narrative like the Midwest, right? When we think of Latinos in the U.S., we maybe think Florida, Texas, Borderlands, California. Um, And obviously there's this growing body of work on Latinos in the Midwest, but um, I'd be curious to hear you talk about sort of how your work helps us to understand that U.S. Latinx experience, right, in those communities, especially in, in um, how you mentioned, along racial and class boundaries, that those communities experience those difficulties and challenges in different ways. Sure. Yeah. So it's really interesting. Um, 
and this is kind of through the work, kind of through life in general. I lived in the Midwest for eight years when I was in Bloomington. And that was interesting because it's a small town, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And so already the divide within, around, between Latinos in Bloomington, Indiana, was really class-based. Yeah. Were you affiliated with university? Were you someone working um, behind a counter somewhere? Uh, and th- those were really stark divides. They were very stark divides. And But it was also on campus to where people made assumptions about where I came from in Mexico. And I was like, mm. oh, I came from California. And But I, it was still the, where are you from? Where are you from? Where are you really from? Where are you really from? You're like, <laughs> I don't know what you're asking. Or I do, and I'm not going to answer because I'm not going to entertain this. But thinking about... Um, this idea of the Midwest or thinking about spaces that are particularly or have been inhospitable, mm-hmm. right? Um, and this is kind of thinking about the work of consumption, right? I think about not just, this isn't just thinking about consuming goods. And I feel like that's always been a tension. Oh, why are you talking about consumerism? That's really neoliberal. I was like, I think we need to understand that Latino communities shouldn't be questioned because a certain body of uh, sort of Latino intelligentsia doesn't agree with their values. Right. Or makes assumptions that there's one way to live a life. And so one of the ways we see cross cross the board nationally, right? Latinos find integration through small business ownership, mm-hmm. right? And so when I think about quinceañeras, I think about people who are transferring in many ways, transferring a skill, a seamstress who was a seamstress across the border, has a grown son now in the Midwest. And so he runs her shop and she becomes this emissary for making dresses or for reaching out to community or for hosting events. Um, And so the idea of thinking about what does it mean to understand that communities don't need academics to intellectualize their experiences, they just need a space to be able to sort of exhibit what they're already doing. Right. And for me, that's one of these questions of thinking about how consumption works, mm-hmm. right? Whether we're thinking about quinceanera girls as being really bold, right? Mm-hmm. And like, this is just who I am. I'm going to be who I am. But this idea, too, of the industrious Latino, which can be very much a, a stereotype, right? But the idea that when you – this idea of these expos that I've looked at, what shows me across the board is the people are interested in owning their own business – these expos are typically run, um, particularly in the Midwest, by women, by female entrepreneurs, uh, with families, sometimes single, sometimes married. But the idea that this idea that knowing tradition becomes part of their survival. And not in the same way as saying I'm making dresses and therefore I'm surviving, but I understand how to organize my community around mm-hmm. practices. Yeah. And that's both valuable culturally, but it's also putting my kids through school. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's there's this need to to sort of redress the sort of evils of neoliberalism. Yes, neoliberalism is evil. But Latino communities are finding ways to flex within those like within strategies that say, okay, if this is what the U.S. is, this is the American dream, right? Um, I think Latinos are able to have been, at least based on my work, right, able to find these niches, right? Absolutely. Where they're they're trans, you know, and and then we're talking about the divide across um, immigrant generations, Mm -hmm. right? And that becomes a different kind of conversation where a recent immigrant from, Mexico or other parts of Latin America can come in and say, I have this expertise, you're third generation, but I can tell you what people are doing in Mexico right now. Mm -hmm. And 
there's a connection there and there's a need there. And so it's almost like people are, wherever I go to these expos, you see sort of this intergenerational narrative of sharing culture and experience that is both not U.S. focused and fundamentally possible because you're in a place that has minimal Latinos, right? Or has right. a minority population of Latinos. So it's a strange, it's a strange kind of um, phenomenon that only can happen mm-hmm. when you're kind of part of a marginalized community. Yeah. And I like the phrase that you use in the book, which is that the goal is not to give voice, right? But to, like you say, hold space and, and hold, hold resources, right? Hold yeah. these sorts of opportunities because they're already doing this. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely, I mean, this is one of the big shifts I think that needs to happen is again, this divide between people with degrees and people without degrees. Cause that's really the only thing that separates many of us, particularly those of us coming through academic narratives and not being of academic spaces. Yeah. Right. The idea that, you know, any one of these people could be our cousins or our nieces or our aunts or grandmothers. Um, and the idea that this isn't about questioning their ability to to make their own decisions, mm-hmm. right? I think that's a generational issue that's uh, reoccurred. But it's really about recognizing and in some ways being an emissary of that legibility and saying, no, no, let me tell you what they told me they're doing. Here's how to translate it to academic speak. But still look at them, mm-hmm. right? And be like, this is amazing. But I didn't make it amazing. They were already amazing. I just got to hang out with people and ask questions. Right. And so tell us about your your current project, which sounds awesome. Yes. The current project is about nails. Um, And the reason I'm working on nails is because when I would go to expos, many, many, many expos across the country, um, by the last, by probably, I would say, 2011, 2012, I saw more and more nail artists at expos. So where before it was definitely dress, hair and makeup, um, and sort of other ancillary industries or things like rent a photo booth or other right. kinds of things that didn't necessarily impact the, the, the quinceanera's body. And um, I would see these usually just kind of women sitting behind a table because you had a booth. And they just have like a little, um, a little sachet with photos, with like actual photos in them. And I was like, what are they selling? Like, they're not doing a very good job. Because, <laughs> you know, everyone else is, is you know, uh, the idea that people learn the politics of display at these expos. These expos, again, have these beautifully laid out tables and signs. Sure. And so part of the expo is being in a space, this conspicuously festive space. And for someone who studies sound or thinks about music, right, the idea that they are extremely loud spaces, yes. right? So they're spaces where you can hear Latinos seeping under the doors. Mm-hmm. And that's really powerful to know that if you, once you open the door, there's very much this wall of sound. And you're like, yes, I'm here. I'm, I'm exactly what I'm doing. Um, and once that door closes, right, there's this inside-outside dynamic based on – and you see people walking through hotels, you know, ballroom lobbies, and they're kind of looking like, what's happening? And it's like, ha-ha, not for you. And there's something <laughs> to be said about the specialness of knowing what's behind that door. Yeah. Um, but you were asking, oh, oh, that nails, right? Of course, lovely. Uh, so going in and seeing these tables that were really sparse that just had a, a tablecloth and a woman, I'd go like, oh, uh, you, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> and uh, oh, I do nails. And so it was just literally like you can look in a portfolio. You can look and see my my nail right. art. And I was like, these are amazing. And <laughs> and some of it was quinceanera based, right? Nails that match 
a dress or look at the skill I have and um, I can give you whatever kind of nail art you want. And I remember seeing these really long acrylic nails where they had the Vita and the Guadalupe painted on them. Mm. And I was like, I want those nails. But I don't because I don't like long nails. But I was like, but I want, I want the Vita and the Guadalupe on my on my fingers. And I started to chat up a woman. This was particularly, and I think this was in um, Omaha. I was in Omaha. And she was, you know, sitting back there. And I was like, I'm like, do you do these by hand? She's like, yeah. And she was telling me about stencils and jewels and all these different accessories. And I was like, this is amazing, but it must take forever. And I thought, huh. I, I just was, I just really liked the idea of it. And more and more, I started thinking about I still am very much interested in thinking about racialization and class. And I grew up in the Bay Area um, in California, and there was very much a distinction racially between Latinos and African-Americans, even though we were very much in the same kind of boat Mm -hmm. in terms of um, social expectations or social devaluation. Um, But I grew up in around black neighborhood, in 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 and around uh, black communities and particularly in a majority black neighborhood. And the one thing they that was always I always remember seeing were nail shops. And so to me I'm thinking like, you know, I never I never had any kind of interest in nails till, you know, graduate school. I never got my nails done regularly until I was a professor because I didn't have any money. Um, but the idea of these spaces, um, and thinking about how spaces of beauty production, right, are really spaces of of gendered socialization, right? Um, and in the U.S., right, there's this very particular connection between um, different different community histories. So in black communities, having different nail salons that are typically run um, by Asian Americans, particularly Vietnamese communities in the Bay Area, um, that has a whole long history from thinking about um, the conflict in Vietnam and mm. the U.S.'s uh, responsibility in, in that violence uh, um, on a global scale. And so thinking a little bit about narratives of immigration, of entrepreneurship, of artistry, I got really interested with the spectacle and thinking about quinceañeras. It was all about big spectacle. And so I started thinking about what about micro spectacle? What about someone who's getting these detailed artwork on their nails and then going and being a cashier somewhere? Or what does it mean to think about elaborate, you know, elaborate acrylic nails and to say, I can't have those because I'm a university professor and no one else has those, right. right? Because that would class me in a certain way or racialize me in a certain way. And so I just started to think I, you know, so I'm just beginning. I'm just beginning this work, doing my um, IRB and getting permissions and kind of staking out some places um, in Austin, Texas, where I am mm-hmm. now, where there's this elaborate culture of um, high-end nail salons and there's one in particular, it's called Blue Salon. It's in South Austin, close to where I live. And they offer nail art, like tattoo uh, like tattoo art. You pay for like a three-hour slot for custom nail art. And so it's very different than sort of going in and saying, I want, uh, I want a manicure, I want French tips, and then I want maybe some jewels or something something detail some detailing on it after the fact there's a whole sort of concept development and the more i think about it it's like the idea of cost and time right mm-hmm. so this becomes an investment in a particular kind of art form on particular kinds of bodies um and i'm interested in this idea of linking that with social entrepreneurship 
and what I understand that to be, and there's a lot of definitions of thinking about social entrepreneurship, but I'm thinking about the ways in which particularly women of color own spaces or women own spaces, depending on where you are, employ other women, right? Mm-hmm. And employ members of the community and they become spaces of more than commerce, right? They become spaces of camaraderie, right? Mm-hmm. Of community development, uh, of economic strengthening, right? Um, and that to me is super interesting, right? What do people learn at the nail salon? And since I didn't, this is much like Quinceaneras where I didn't grow up going to nail salons or hair salons. Like that wasn't a kind of acculturation that I had into my gender identity. So I'm almost thinking about what have I missed? What are the stories that people are sharing? What does it mean to be, you know, to follow your mother or your father or, some, you know, or your aunt to these spaces um, and seeing how community is built? Still in a consumer zone, but not necessarily just about um, making a profit. Mm-hmm. So we'll see where it goes. But I'm excited to think about what does it mean to think about female artists, women of color, who are, cre- who are working, again, in a very intimate space of the body, um, and what what does that what does that do for communities to have yeah. those kinds of spaces? I think you're going to need to get some of those Virgen de Guadalupe nails. I my plan. So we're talking about research methodologies. I'm working <laughs> on getting um, gift cards, and I'm soliciting sort of like grad students, undergrads, people around me to essentially go get whatever they want done, you know, within a certain price range. And then let me interview them about them. That's sort of the initial, be like, because it really can't just be me. I can only do so much. (laughs) But the idea, and so thinking about this way, thinking about methodology, which really came into the book as the book as well, is when you work with people whose livelihoods are based on tradition, you need to buy things from them. Mm -hmm. It's nice to tell them you're going to quote them in a book, and they think that's great, but you need to buy something from them. This is, people give you time, they let you hang out with them. You know, I have tiaras and I have dresses and I, you know, this idea of saying, how do you support these people as right. other human beings who are trying to, to make a living? Yeah. And that becomes really important. So the same thing with the nails thinking, I, I don't intend to just go in and say, can I watch you work? It's more like, I'm going to get you five appointments, you know, for the next, you know, every mm-hmm. Friday for the next five weeks. Right. That's probably a fair amount of money. Is it okay if I'm around? Right. If not, then I'll come back and interview people mm-hmm. separately. But I just think there's an ethic there to saying that, um, and people say, oh, isn't it unethical to pay people? So I'm not paying people for their information. But I'm understanding that to value people's time. Yes. Right. And particularly within the community, particularly people who are artists. Right. Yeah. To practice the value of of their labor and absolutely. of their craft. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so speaking of students, uh, you do all this amazing, you know, research as a folklorist, anthrop- anthropologist, but also – a lot of your work happens in the classroom, yes. right? Teaching students at UT Austin. And I know that you also have a passion for mentoring specifically Latino students. Um, so how has your work sort of informed your teaching praxis and your pedagogy? Sure. Um, I love teaching. Teaching is probably the reason that I became a professor and they make me publish because that's the system. But I do very much really appreciate the engagement with students more than more than I you know like going out into the field. Although working on nails and quinces is you know it's a good time. Mm-hmm. So on that regard, I'm, I'm lucky. Um, I feel that it's my absolute responsibility to show up for my students, um, and that happens on a variety of levels. So that happens in the classroom. 
um, my class, you know, I'm, I'm, I try to see my students as human beings. Um, and that is complicated because part of that means I have to put aside a certain amount of um, sort of power presentation, mm-hmm. right? Being able to be flexible with students, being able and caring when someone's not there. I think that's, that's one of the sort of these bigger elements of thinking about interacting in the classroom is looking people in the eye and saying it matters that you're here. And currently at UT, before when I taught other places, I, I only had a few, a handful of Latino students because the numbers were so low. Right. But now I teach in a Mexican-American and Latino studies department. So all my students, I think I have uh, this semester, all my students are Latino identifying the majority Mexican-American. Um, so part of being a Latina in the classroom is letting them know some of the politics. And right now I'm teaching like a 25-person theory course, and it's all women of color. And I'm looking around, and I'm like, everyone has to pause. Like, y'all got to pause and look around. Mm. Because this doesn't happen. But we're here, right? So I'm always drawing them attention to the narratives of space. What, what are we doing here? What are you doing here when you could be home, where you miss everybody at home, right? So thinking a little bit about drawing attention to this base of, really I tell them this is a Western neoliberal big research university, right? We were never meant to be here. None of us. I wasn't meant to be in front of the classroom. You were not meant to be in the classroom. And here we are. Right. So thinking about what do we do with this opportunity? Um, we do anything we want, right? Mm-hmm. But part of, I, I try to get my students to, bring in their experiences explicitly and really trying to emphasize to my students that you didn't come here empty. This isn't a place to fill you up and make you whole. And many students feel that way, that they come, they don't come from education. So the educational environment is like going to fix them. And I'm always trying to emphasize that you have bodies of knowledge within you that absolutely impact how you do here, what you can do here. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, what do you want to talk about? What research do you want to do? And so almost all my classes have fairly elaborate independent research projects Mm -hmm. because I feel like preparing students to learn how to ask questions and then learn how to present them legibly is a skill set that they need to have to be able to say what they want to say as long as it appears in the form that the university wants them to know. And so we talk a lot about um, strategies for negotiating the university. So in class, it's about bringing in examples, about bringing in student voices. It's about letting students work on projects that are important to them and being willing to walk them through the stages of how to do that, whether or not it's that type of class or not. And then I'm really available. My door is open. And a lot of times people come to my through my door and sit down and cry about other things, not necessarily about anything um, in our class um, or even sometimes anything that's in the, the university. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talk back, right? So I feel like on a lot of levels sometimes it's, it's heavy, heavy on the emotional, the emotional endurance side. I get students, I don't know how they find me, but they do. <laughs> and we talk about, you know, they – they find me and they disclose violence in their history. They disclose depression and sadness. And so I offer them the responses that 
I suffer from that myself. Mm-hmm. And I take medication. And it's okay. It's okay. You, can, you can get through it. Yeah. And you can come back here and we can talk again. Um, I was at, and, I'm, and I always expect that from students in my classes, but I was on a panel, some <laughs> university diversity panel, uh, which I'm tapped to do a lot of, of that kind of work. But I think if students see me on those panels, it's my, it's my job. I got this far. They need to see someone that might look like them. Mm-hmm. Or their DS or their mothers, now that I'm getting older. Good Lord. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I had this student come up to me after talking on this panel. And I never met her. She's not in any of my classes. And when she came up to me, she was just, she couldn't even say her name. She was, she was bawling. And she says, I don't have anyone to look up to. And so I pulled her aside and, and I said, you know, we want to hug. And we hugged. And I gave her my, um, my office information. I said, come by and see me tomorrow when you can talk. And she did. And we had this long conversation about her parents to understand she didn't want to be an engineer. She wanted to be a writer. And I said, okay. So we kind of talked about what could she do with her degree. I know, granted, I think at that point I didn't ask her her name again until, like, she, it was a little bit awkward. I didn't want to re-ask her her name. But mm-hmm. it didn't matter because she wasn't in my classes. She, she just she needed someone to speak to. That's not to say there aren't advisors in engineering or in the sciences where she was, but they weren't people she could speak to. So she yeah. found my office and all these things. And um, we talked for about 30 minutes. And she was getting an idea of how to narrate to her parents, who were well-educated from South Texas. There wasn't necessarily um, a class narrative, but it was this, again, this inability to find a resource on campus. And for her, it meant someone maybe that looked like her or spoke mm-hmm. like her or had a background like her and made their way through in a successful way. I met her. I ran into her maybe the next semester. And I looked at her and I said, hey, I know you. You doing okay? And she like rumped to me and, and she hugged me. And she said, thank you so much. She's like, now I'm doing, and she was like, now I'm doing like a double major in, um, I think it was like environmental sciences and, and Latino studies. And it was getting her to this place where she thought she, she could do what she really wanted mm-hmm. to. And I never saw her again, you know. So this idea of understanding that with my students in particular and my, I, you know, I mentor a lot of grad students, um, so much of that, I don't think of it as an intellectual game. Mm-hmm. It's not. Most of it is very much affective. It's about being together. It's about talking through your issues with someone you hope seems to understand, ho- hopes that they understand you, but from everything you're able to judge from the outside that they might very much understand your experiences. Right. Um, and sometimes that's all students need. And so, you know, part of it is getting, you know, I've my students are going to grad programs, are getting PhDs, are getting mentorships, are getting cool jobs. But um, that's kind of not the only or the most important part of, of our relationship building. And that's really it, a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And how that's so important to, to embrace that vulnerability, right? And to, to prioritize that, to have the courage, right? To be, to be vulnerable, not only in your work, but in those relationships with students. And so later today, right, you're going to deliver this, um, a keynote address for a grad student conference here in folklore and ethnomusicology. And it's no secret, right? That folklore as a field in ethnomusicology, right? Has long been dominated by, by white scholars, Right. Um, and particularly in folklore, white women. So um, sort of and especially here, we're at Ohio State, right, predominantly white institution with an exceptionally low Latinx student enrollment. Um, so what 
and the, your talk is titled The Future of Folklore's Feminist, Intersectional Feminist Praxis in U.S. American Folklore Studies, right? So, so now speaking to, to a room, you know, of perhaps mostly white, white women, right, graduate students studying folklore, like what, what is that? talk trying to do um i guess just the the short short version or where did that come from so that's interesting so the idea of it came from really finishing my book and thinking about i I never really identified as feminist or doing feminist work i thought there was a lot more that i didn't understand i wasn't trained in women's studies you know and from an intellectual perspective Mm -hmm. But what I found with this idea of the politics of visibility was the idea that Latinas were challenging the scripts that we had been taught, mm-hmm. whether it was to be invisible, whether it was to be silent, to be serviceable to others. When I think about quinceaneras complaining to their parents that they're not getting the dress they want, they want a different dress. Some people see that as, oh, that's the decline, that's spoiled you know, youth. And I'm like, no, that's a girl standing up for herself. She doesn't have to get it. But this idea of this ability or the value in your own opinion, the value of the words you have to say, the value of being seen, right, to me is this whole other level of thinking about feminist discourse that comes from thinking about vulnerable bodies of women of color. Mm-hmm. And the legacies of that. And so thinking today um, to this group, I was laughing with my ho- one of my other hosts earlier saying, good thing I have tenure because <laughs> I, uh, I decided to st- – I feel like I'm saying some things that are um, – might upset people and that that's okay, mm-hmm. you know, because I think that's my responsibility. So part of my responsibility with being – a faculty member, even before I got tenure, you know, because I was invited to do this before my tenure vote was finished, um, is to to speak honestly about how to how to move our field forward. Because I still very much love the field of folklore, but I know that there's a lot of labor to be done. So when I think about the future, of folklore is uh, is feminist. I'll tell you, it's based on this idea of critical vulnerability. It's a based on acknowledging uh, the way in which the academy is a masculine of center space um, and that everyone is always and everyone is expected to be to make it to be a very particular type of person so you'll find a lot of women who are them are are themselves made to be misogynists in their own right because they want to survive academic discourse it's about thinking about the politics of what does it mean to be minoritized and not a minority particularly as demographics across the university and the the u.s change it's thinking about acknowledging uh, whiteness as race, as white scholars as responsible for discussing whiteness or Anglo identity as a racialized identity and not leaving all the work to people of color to narrate um, values. It's thinking about um, really thinking about not just studies of whiteness and race, but I'm trying to think of my last point here that I that I talk through. Oh, it's thinking about where folklore is definitely this narrative have, has always been rooted in the the fetish of the collection. Mm. And I'm saying we need to get no more discussions of collecting people's work. We got to move from this narrative of the collection to the collectivist, right? Engaging with people in communities, not in um, excising texts from people. Um, and so we'll see how that goes. Yeah. I'm excited about it. I'm excited too. <laughs> Great. Well, is there is there anything else that you'd like to say about your work or add to this conversation here? 
Yeah, when I was little, I didn't like to read. I was really bad at it. Uh, I was good at it, I guess, but I, I didn't like it. And my mother is a public librarian, so I spent most of my life in a library. Um, and now I'm a professor, a tenured professor. And all I do is read and write. And so part of me wants to remind if there's little girls or little boys or folks listening to this who are doubting their, doubting what they can be, right? It's, we all know that class and race and social position, all of these things factor in. Um, but there's, there's, there's usually a nagging feeling inside of you, the kinds of questions you want to ask. Try to find those answers, right? And it, you'll be surprised where it takes you. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for having me. Y a todos, gracias por escucharnos. Y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. Mm -hmm.